the law school of america the supreme court of the united states scotus is the highest court in the federal judiciary of the united states of america it has ultimate and largely discretionary appellate jurisdiction over all federal and state court cases that involve a point of federal law and original jurisdiction over a narrow range of cases specifically all cases affecting ambassadors other public ministers and consuls and those in which a state shall be party the court holds the power of judicial review the ability to invalidate a statute for violating a provision of the constitution it is also able to strike down presidential directives for violating either the constitution or statutory law However, it may act only within the context of a case in an area of law over which it has jurisdiction. The court may decide cases having political overtones, but it has ruled that it does not have power to decide non-justiciable political questions. Established by Article 3 of the United States Constitution, the composition and procedures of the Supreme Court were initially established by the First Congress through the Judiciary Act of 1789. As later set by the Judiciary Act of 1869, the court consists of the Chief Justice of the United States and eight Associate Justices. Each Justice has lifetime tenure, meaning they remain on the court until they resign, retire, die, or are removed from office. When a vacancy occurs, the President, with the advice and consent of the Senate, appoints a new Justice. Each Justice has a single vote in deciding the cases argued before it. When in majority, the Chief Justice decides who writes the opinion of the court, otherwise, the most senior justice in the majority assigns the task of writing the opinion. The court meets in the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. Its law enforcement arm is the Supreme Court Police. History It was while debating the separation of powers between the legislative and executive departments that delegates to the 1787 Constitutional Convention established the parameters for the national judiciary. Creating a third branch of government was a novel idea, in the English tradition. Judicial matters had been treated as an aspect of royal, executive, authority. Early on, the delegates who were opposed to having a strong central government argued that national laws could be enforced by state courts, while others, including James Madison, advocated for a national judicial authority consisting of various tribunals chosen by the national legislature. It was also proposed that the judiciary should have a role in checking the executive's power to veto or revise laws. In the end, the framers compromised by sketching only a general outline of the judiciary, vesting federal judicial power in one Supreme Court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. They delineated neither the exact powers and prerogatives of the Supreme Court nor the organization of the judicial branch as a whole. The first United States Congress provided the detailed organization of a federal judiciary through the Judiciary Act of 1789. The Supreme Court, the country's highest judicial tribunal, was to sit in the nation's capital and would initially be composed of a chief justice and five associate justices. The act also divided the country into judicial districts, which were in turn organized into circuits. Justices were required to ride circuit and hold circuit court twice a year in their assigned judicial district. Immediately after signing the act into law, President George Washington nominated the following people to serve on the court, John Jay for Chief Justice and John Rutledge, William Cushing, Robert H. Harrison, James Wilson, and John Blair Jr. as Associate Justices. All six were confirmed by the Senate on September 26, 1789. Harrison, however, declined to serve. In his place, Washington later nominated James Iredell. The Supreme Court held its inaugural session from February 2 through February 10, 1790, at the Royal Exchange in New York City, 
than the U.S. capital. A second session was held there in August 1790. The earliest sessions of the court were devoted to organizational proceedings, as the first cases did not reach it until 1791. When the nation's capital was moved to Philadelphia in 1790, the Supreme Court did so as well. After initially meeting at Independence Hall, the court established its chambers at City Hall. Earliest beginnings through Marshall. Under Chief Justices J. Rutledge, and Ellsworth, 1789-1801, the court heard few cases. Its first decision was West v. Barnes, 1791, a case involving procedure. As the court initially had only six members, every decision that it made by a majority was also made by two-thirds, voting four to two. However, Congress has always allowed less than the court's full membership to make decisions, starting with a quorum of four justices in 1789. The court lacked a home of its own and had little prestige, a situation not helped by the era's highest-profile case, Chisholm v. Georgia, 1793, which was reversed within two years by the adoption of the Eleventh Amendment. The court's power and prestige grew substantially during the Marshall Court, 1801-1835. Under Marshall, the court established the power of judicial review over acts of Congress, including specifying itself as the supreme expositor of the Constitution, Marbury v. Madison, and making several important constitutional rulings that gave shape and substance to the balance of power between the federal government and states, notably, Martin v. Hunter's Lassie, McCulloch v. Maryland and Gibbons v. Ogden. The Marshall Court also ended the practice of each justice issuing his opinion stereatum, a remnant of British tradition, and instead issuing a single majority opinion. Also during Marshall's tenure, although beyond the court's control, the impeachment and acquittal of Justice Samuel Chase in 1804-05 helped cement the principle of judicial independence. From Tawney to Taft. The Tawney Court, 1836-1864, made several important rulings, such as Sheldon v. Sale which held that while Congress may not limit the subjects the Supreme Court may hear, it may limit the jurisdiction of the lower federal courts to prevent them from hearing cases dealing with certain subjects. Nevertheless, it is primarily remembered for its ruling in Dred Scott v. Sandford, which helped precipitate the Civil War. In the Reconstruction era, the Chase, Waite, and Fuller Courts, 1864-1910, interpreted the new Civil War amendments to the Constitution and developed the doctrine of substantive due process. Lochner v. New York, Adair v. United States. Under the White and Taft Courts, 1910-1930, the Court held that the Fourteenth Amendment had incorporated some guarantees of the Bill of Rights against the states, Gitlow v. New York, grappled with the new antitrust statutes, Standard Oil Company of New Jersey v. United States, upheld the constitutionality of military conscription, selective draft law cases, and brought the substantive due process doctrine to its first apogee, Atkins v. Children's Hospital. New Deal Era. During the Hughes, Stone, and Vincent Courts, 1930-1953, the Court gained its own accommodation in 1935 and changed its interpretation of the Constitution, giving a broader reading to the powers of the federal government to facilitate President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, most prominently West Coast Hotel Company v. Parrish, Wickard v. Filburn, United States v. Darby and United States v. Butler. During World War II, the court continued to favor government power, upholding the internment of Japanese citizens, Korematsu v. United States, and the mandatory Pledge of Allegiance, Minersville School District v. Gobitis. Nevertheless, Gobitis was soon repudiated, West Virginia State Board of Education v. Barnett, and the steel seizure case restricted the pro-government trend. Warren and Berger. The Warren Court, 
1953-1969, dramatically expanded the force of constitutional civil liberties. It held that segregation in public schools violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Brown v. Board of Education, Bowling v. Sharp and Green v. County School B.D., and that legislative districts must be roughly equal in population, Reynolds v. Sims. It created a general right to privacy, Griswold v. Connecticut, limited the role of religion in public school, most prominently Engel v. Vitale and Abington School District v. Shemp, incorporated most guarantees of the Bill of Rights against the states, prominently Mapp v. Ohio, the exclusionary rule, and Gideon v. Wainwright, right to appointed counsel, and required that criminal suspects be apprised of all these rights by police, Miranda v. Arizona. At the same time, however, the court limited defamation suits by public figures, New York Times v. Sullivan, and supplied the government with an unbroken run of antitrust victories. The Burger Court, 1969-1986, marked a conservative shift. It also expanded Griswold's right to privacy to strike down abortion laws, Roe v. Wade, but divided deeply on affirmative action, Regents of the University of California v. Bakke, and campaign finance regulation, Buckley v. Vallejo. It also wavered on the death penalty, ruling first that most applications were defective, Furman v. Georgia, but later, that the death penalty itself was not unconstitutional, Gregg v. Georgia. Rehnquist and Roberts. The Rehnquist Court, 1986-2005, was noted for its revival of judicial enforcement of federalism, emphasizing the limits of the Constitution's affirmative grants of power, United States v. Lopez, and the force of its restrictions on those powers, Seminole Tribe v. Florida, City of Bernie v. Flores. It struck down single-sex state schools as a violation of equal protection, United States v. Virginia, laws against sodomy as violations of substantive due process, Lawrence v. Texas, and the line-item veto, Clinton v. New York, but upheld school vouchers, Zellman v. Simmons-Harris, and reaffirmed Roe's restrictions on abortion laws, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The court's decision in Bush v. Gore, which ended the electoral recount during the presidential election of 2000 was especially controversial. The Roberts Court, 2005-present, is regarded as more conservative than the Rehnquist Court. Some of its major rulings have concerned federal preemption, Wyeth v. Levine, civil procedure, Twombly Iqbal, abortion, Gonzalez v. Carhartt, climate change, Massachusetts v. EPA, same-sex marriage, United States v. Windsor and Obergefell v. Hodges, and the Bill of Rights, notably in Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission. First Amendment, Heller M. C. Donald, Second Amendment, and Bayes v. Reese, Eighth Amendment. Composition. Size of the Court. Article 3 of the Constitution sets neither the size of the Supreme Court nor any specific positions on it, though the existence of the Office of the Chief Justice is tacitly acknowledged in Article I, Section 3, Clause 6. Instead, these powers are entrusted to Congress, which initially established a six-member Supreme Court composed of a Chief Justice and five Associate Justices through the Judiciary Act of 1789. The size of the Court was first altered by an 1801 Act which would have reduced the size of the Court to five members upon its next vacancy, but an 1802 Act promptly negated the 1801 Act, legally restoring the Court's size to six members before any such vacancy occurred. As the nation's boundaries grew, Congress added justices to correspond with the growing number of judicial circuits, seven in 1807, nine in 1837, and ten in 1863. In 1866, at the behest of Chief Justice Chasen in an attempt to limit the power of Andrew Johnson, 
Congress passed an act providing that the next three justices to retire would not be replaced, which would thin the bench to seven justices by attrition. Consequently, one seat was removed in 1866 and a second in 1867. In 1869, however, the Circuit Judges Act returned the number of justices to nine, where it has since remained. President Franklin D. Roosevelt attempted to expand the court in 1937. His proposal envisioned the appointment of one additional justice for each incumbent justice who reached the age of 70 years six months and refused retirement, up to a maximum bench of 15 justices. The proposal was ostensibly to ease the burden of the docket on elderly judges, but the actual purpose was widely understood as an effort to pack the court with justices who would support Roosevelt's New Deal. The plan, usually called the Court Packing Plan, failed in Congress. Nevertheless, the court's balance began to shift within months when Justice Willis Van Devanter retired and was replaced by Senator Hugo Black. By the end of 1941, Roosevelt had appointed seven associate justices and elevated Harlan F. Stone to Chief Justice. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Nomination, Confirmation, and Appointment. Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the United States Constitution, known as the Appointments Clause, empowers the President to nominate and, with the confirmation, advice and consent, of the United States Senate to appoint public officials, including justices of the Supreme Court. This clause is one example of the system of checks and balances inherent in the Constitution. The President has the plenary power to nominate, while the Senate possesses the plenary power to reject or confirm the nominee. The Constitution sets no qualifications for service as a justice, thus a President may nominate anyone to serve, and the Senate may not set any qualifications or otherwise limit who the President can choose. In modern times, the confirmation process has attracted considerable attention from the press and advocacy groups, which lobby senators to confirm or to reject a nominee depending on whether their track record aligns with the group's views. The Senate Judiciary Committee conducts hearings and votes on whether the nomination should go to the full Senate with a positive, negative or neutral report. The committee's practice of personally interviewing nominees is relatively recent. The first nominee to appear before the committee was Harlan Fisk Stone in 1925 who sought to quell concerns about his links to Wall Street, and the modern practice of questioning began with John Marshall Harlan II in 1955. Once the committee reports out the nomination, the full Senate considers it. Rejections are relatively uncommon, the Senate has explicitly rejected 12 Supreme Court nominees, most recently Robert Bork, nominated by President Ronald Reagan in 1987. Although Senate rules do not necessarily allow a negative voting committee to block a nomination, Prior to 2017 a nomination could be blocked by filibuster once debate had begun in the full Senate. President Lyndon B. Johnson's nomination of sitting Associate Justice Abe Fortas to succeed Earl Warren as Chief Justice in 1968 was the first successful filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee. It included both Republican and Democratic senators concerned with Fortas's ethics. President Donald Trump's nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the seat left vacant by Antonin Scalia's death was the second. Unlike the Fortis filibuster, however, only Democratic senators voted against cloture on the Gorsuch nomination, citing his perceived conservative judicial philosophy, and the Republican majority's prior refusal to take up President Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to fill the vacancy. This led the Republican majority to change the rules and eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. Not every Supreme Court nominee has received a floor vote in the Senate. A president may withdraw a nomination before an actual confirmation vote occurs, 
typically because it is clear that the Senate will reject the nominee. This occurred most recently with President George W. Bush's nomination of Harriet Myers in 2006. The Senate may also fail to act on a nomination, which expires at the end of the session. For example, President Dwight Eisenhower's first nomination of John Marshall Harlan II in November 1954 was not acted on by the Senate. Eisenhower renominated Harlan in January 1955, and Harlan was confirmed two months later. Most recently, as previously noted, the Senate failed to act on the March 2016 nomination of Merrick Garland, the nomination expired in January 2017, and the vacancy was filled by Neil Gorsuch, an appointee of President Trump. Once the Senate confirms a nomination, the President must prepare and sign a commission, to which the seal of the Department of Justice must be affixed, before the new justice can take office. The seniority of an associate justice is based on the commissioning date, not the confirmation or swearing-in date. The importance of commissioning is underscored by the case of Edwin M. Stanton. Although appointed to the court on December 19, 1869, by President Ulysses S. Grant and confirmed by the Senate a few days later, Stanton died on December 24, prior to receiving his commission. He is not, therefore, considered to have been an actual member of the court. Before 1981, the approval process of justices was usually rapid. From the Truman through Nixon administrations, justices were typically approved within one month. From the Reagan administration to the present, however, the process has taken much longer. Some believe this is because Congress sees justices as playing a more political role than in the past. According to the Congressional Research Service, the average number of days from nomination to final Senate vote since 1975 is 67 days, 2.2 months, while the median is 71 days, or 2.3 months. Recess appointments. When the Senate is in recess, a president may make temporary appointments to fill vacancies. Recess appointees hold office only until the end of the next Senate session, less than two years. The Senate must confirm the nominee for them to continue serving. Of the two Chief Justices and eleven Associate Justices who have received recess appointments, only Chief Justice John Rutledge was not subsequently confirmed. No president since Dwight D. Eisenhower has made a recess appointment to the court, and the practice has become rare and controversial even in lower federal courts. In 1960, after Eisenhower had made three such appointments, the Senate passed a sense of the Senate resolution that recess appointments to the court should only be made in unusual circumstances. Such resolutions are not legally binding but are an expression of Congress's views in the hope of guiding executive action. The Supreme Court's 2014 decision in National Labor Relations Board v. Noel Canning limited the ability of the president to make recess appointments, including appointments to the Supreme Court. The court ruled that the Senate decides when the Senate is in session, or in recess. Writing for the court, Justice Breyer stated, We hold that, for purposes of the recess appointments clause, the Senate is in session when it says it is, provided that, under its own rules, it retains the capacity to transact Senate business. This ruling allows the Senate to prevent recess appointments through the use of pro forma sessions. Tenure. The Constitution provides that justices shall hold their offices during good behavior, unless appointed during a Senate recess. The term good behavior is understood to mean justices may serve for the remainder of their lives, unless they are impeached and convicted by Congress, resign, or retire. Only one justice has been impeached by the House of Representatives, Samuel Chase, March 1804 but he was acquitted in the Senate, March 1805. Moves to impeach sitting justices have occurred more recently, for example, William O. Douglas was the subject of hearings twice, in 1953 and again in 1970, 
and Abe Fortas resigned while hearings were being organized in 1969, but they did not reach a vote in the House. No mechanism exists for removing a justice who is permanently incapacitated by illness or injury, but unable, or unwilling, to resign. Because justices have indefinite tenure, timing of vacancies can be unpredictable. Sometimes vacancies arise in quick succession, as in the early 1970s when Louis F. Powell Jr. and William Rehnquist were nominated to replace Hugo Black and John Marshall Harlan II, who retired within a week of each other. Sometimes a great length of time passes between nominations, such as the 11 years between Stephen Breyer's nomination in 1994 to succeed Harry Blackman and the nomination of John Roberts in 2005 to fill the seat of Sandra Day O'Connor though Roberts' nomination was withdrawn and resubmitted for the role of Chief Justice after Rehnquist died. Despite the variability, all but four presidents had been able to appoint at least one justice. William Henry Harrison died a month after taking office, though his successor, John Tyler, made an appointment during that presidential term. Likewise, Zachary Taylor died 16 months after taking office, but his successor, Millard Fillmore, also made a Supreme Court nomination before the end of that term. Andrew Johnson, who became president after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, was denied the opportunity to appoint a justice by a reduction in the size of the court. Jimmy Carter is the only person elected president to have left office after at least one full term without having the opportunity to appoint a justice. Presidents James Monroe, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and George W. Bush each served a full term without an opportunity to appoint a justice, but made appointments during their subsequent terms in office. No president who has served more than one full term has gone without at least one opportunity to make an appointment. Court Demographics The court currently has six male and three female justices. Among the nine justices, there is one African-American justice, Justice Thomas, and one Hispanic justice, Justice Sotomayor. One of the justices was born to at least one immigrant parent, Justice Alito's father was born in Italy. At least six justices are Roman Catholics and two are Jewish. It is unclear whether Neil Gorsuch considers himself a Catholic or an Episcopalian. Historically, most justices have been Protestants, including 36 Episcopalians, 19 Presbyterians, 10 Unitarians, 5 Methodists, and 3 Baptists. The first Catholic justice was Roger Taney in 1836, and 1916 saw the appointment of the first Jewish justice, Louis Brandeis. In recent years the historical situation has reversed, as most recent justices have been either Catholic or Jewish. All current justices except for Amy Coney Barrett have Ivy League backgrounds as either undergraduates or law students. Barrett received her bachelor's degree at Rhodes College and her law degree at the University of Notre Dame. Three justices are from the state of New York, and one each is from California, New Jersey, Georgia, Colorado, Louisiana and Washington, D.C. In the 19th century, Every justice was a man of Northwestern European descent, and almost always Protestant. Diversity concerns focused on geography, to represent all regions of the country, rather than religious, ethnic, or gender diversity. Racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in the court increased in the late 20th century. Thurgood Marshall became the first African-American justice in 1967. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice in 1981. In 1986, Antonin Scalia became the first Italian-American justice. Marshall was succeeded by African-American Clarence Thomas in 1991. O'Connor was joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1993. After O'Connor's retirement Ginsburg was joined in 2009 by Sonia Sotomayor, the first Hispanic and Latina justice, and in 2010 by Elena Kagan. 
After Ginsburg's death on September 18, 2020, Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed as the fifth woman in the court's history on October 26, 2020. There have been six foreign-born justices in the court's history, James Wilson, 1789-1798, born in Cascardy, Scotland, James Iredell, 1790-1799, born in Lewis, England, William Patterson, 1793-1806, born in County Antrim, Northern Ireland, David Brewer, 1889-1910, born to American missionaries in Smyrna, Ottoman Empire, now Izmir, Turkey, George Sutherland, 1922-1939, born in Buckinghamshire, England, and Felix Frankfurter, 1939-1962, born in Vienna, Austria-Hungary, now in Austria. Retired Justices There are currently three living retired justices of the Supreme Court of the United States, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter. As retired justices, they no longer participate in the work of the Supreme Court, but may be designated for temporary assignments to sit on lower federal courts, usually the United States Courts of Appeals. Such assignments are formally made by the Chief Justice, on request of the Chief Judge of the lower court and with the consent of the retired justice. In recent years, Justice O'Connor has sat with several courts of appeals around the country, and Justice Souter has frequently sat on the First Circuit, the court of which he was briefly a member before joining the Supreme Court. The status of a retired justice is analogous to that of a circuit or district court judge who has taken senior status, and eligibility of a Supreme Court justice to assume retired status, rather than simply resign from the bench, is governed by the same age and service criteria. In recent times, justices tend to strategically plan their decisions to leave the bench with personal, institutional, ideological, partisan and sometimes even political factors playing a role. The fear of mental decline and death often motivates justices to step down. The desire to maximize the court's strength and legitimacy through one retirement at a time, when the court is in recess, and during non-presidential election years suggests a concern for institutional health. Finally, especially in recent decades, many justices have timed their departure to coincide with a philosophically compatible president holding office, to ensure that a like-minded successor would be appointed. Seniority and Seating For the most part, the day-to-day -day activities of the justices are governed by rules of protocol based upon the seniority of justices. The Chief Justice always ranks first in the order of precedence, regardless of the length of their service. The Associate Justices are then ranked by the length of their service. The Chief Justice sits in the center on the bench, or at the head of the table during conferences. The other Justices are seated in order of seniority. The senior most Associate Justice sits immediately to the Chief Justice's right, the second most senior sits immediately to their left. The seats alternate right to left in order of seniority with the most junior justice occupying the last seat. Therefore, starting in the middle of the October 2020 term, the court will sit as follows from left to right, from the perspective of those facing the court, Kavanaugh, Kagan, Alito, Thomas, Most Senior Associate Justice, Roberts, Chief Justice, Breyer, Sotomayor, Gorsuch, and Barrett. Likewise, when the members of the court gather for official group photographs, justices are arranged in order of seniority with the five most senior members seated in the front row in the same order as they would sit during court sessions, and the four most junior justices standing behind them, again in the same order as they would sit during court sessions. In the justices' private conferences, current practice is for them to speak and vote in order of seniority, beginning with the chief justice first and ending with the most junior associate justice.
By custom, the most junior associate justice in these conferences is charged with any menial tasks the justices may require as they convene alone, such as answering the door of their conference room, serving beverages and transmitting orders of the court to the clerk. Justice Joseph Story served the longest as junior justice, from February 3, 1812, to September 1, 1823, for a total of 4,228 days. Justice Stephen Breyer followed very closely behind serving from August 3, 1994, to January 31, 2006, for a total of 4,199 days. Justice Elena Kagan comes in at a distant third serving from August 6, 2010, to April 10, 2017 for a total of 2,439 days. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America.